Welcome everyone to the Developmentor Podcast, your source for interviews and content on careers in technology. I'm your host, Grant Ingersoll. For those new to the show, we have two simple goals. We want to showcase interesting people working in tech across a variety of roles, not just engineering. And we also want to highlight the different paths people take to arrive at those careers in tech. And in fact, today's guest is a pretty interesting one in the sense that they've held a lot of different roles. They are a former submarine officer in the Navy. They've got a back, he's got a background in cognitive science as well as computer science. And on top of all of that, he's won numerous awards, including two from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, as well as one from the Clinton Global Initiative. As if that isn't enough, he's also been a lifelong or a longtime contributor to open source who now leads a nonprofit focused on transforming lives through knowledge. Please welcome to the show, Cliff Schmidt. Cliff, great to have you. Yeah, thanks, uh, Grant, for having me here. And, you know, dude, obviously I want to spend some time with you on talking about the Amplio Network and your talking book in- initiative, and, and we'll get into that. But why don't we start off by just setting the stage with, you know, your career and your background, how you got it, you know, your time in the Navy, perhaps, you, the time you spent at Microsoft, kind of some of the things that led you to where you are now. Okay, sure. Uh, well, I, yes, I did. Uh, my first career was uh, as a Navy submarine officer. Um, and like uh, all submarine officers, you start uh, with focusing on uh, running the um, nuclear engineering plant. So um, the vast majority of submarines, um, U.S. Navy submarines are nuclear powered. So you, you have to understand nuclear power, how that works and how to make sure you don't do anything bad to the reactor. And uh, um, yeah, that was that was the first career. Yeah, and so then you you know you come out of out of the Navy and and you then get involved with Microsoft and, and a few other companies. You know, talk a little bit about kind of those early years of your career post Navy and, and kind of how that sets you up for where you are today. Yeah, uh, well, I was a you know computer geek kid uh, in junior high and high school, of course, and um, in college and. Uh, and so the Navy was just to pay for college. So once I got out of the Navy, um, I went right back into wanting to to get involved in software development. And uh, I happened to be, um, the Navy had me based in uh, not too far from Seattle. And so, um, so yeah, Microsoft was kind of the big employer. So I started working there. Um, I started as a, a, a developer. Um, and, uh, and then after a bit, um, I got into being a, a program manager, and so at, at Microsoft, um, it, that means a, a little bit of um, designing the product, and, and then a, a little bit of kind of a, this, a lot of specifications, and then and then running the process. And then um, somehow I uh, I guess I was I was very interested in in web standards, and I was you know paying a lot of attention to uh, the World Wide Web Consortium, the W three C. And, um, and so I ended up, uh, becoming a, um, standards representative for Microsoft to the W3C. I was on the XML schema standards group and, uh, and did some other standards work. And, uh, and then that is what actually led me into working on open source when I started working for, um, BEA systems, which, uh, some of your listeners may remember, um, it's, uh, later bought by Oracle, um, but they were doing a lot of Java work and they were looking for someone to 
figure out open source for them. And uh, I don't know why they thought hiring someone from Microsoft would be a good way to do it because I had no experience in open source. But um, but where, where we what we both agreed on was that um, if you can work in a standards organization, if you can work with other people from different organizations that might be your competitors, um, but you're you're there to build something uh, together that everyone can benefit from. If you have that kind of attitude, and uh, working in open source communities is just the implementation of those, you know, of the idea that was interfaces in in standards bodies. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I, it's it's kind of an interesting transition. I mean, a lot of times, as in, you know, as an engineer or developer, you go kind of up director of engineering and things like that, but you know, you, you effectively shifted over to more of a product and, and or product management role. And then obviously the standards role, like, was there something pulling you that way? Or did you just kind of say, Hey, you know, this was the opportunity in front of you or, or did you feel more strongly aligned with, you know, getting out of coding for instance, or, or doing less coding? Yeah, um, I think um, I was kind of pulled in one way, but um, you know, later when I uh, started the organization I, I run today, I ended up writing you know, some some uh, a lot of uh, embedded C code. Uh, so I ended up coming right back to it, and I I uh, I loved it. And um, even today, um, I don't do a lot of uh, uh, coding myself. But even today, whenever there's something that I, you know, get myself involved in, I still love it. But I think maybe what it was is, um, is that at the time I was, um, and it, this this has happened a few times, that I was pulled into wanting to be involved in the bigger picture. So writing code is is really fulfilling to me. But uh, you know, designing the spec for that, or designing the spec for what all kinds of organizations you know will need to be paying attention to when it's a standard um, or pulling a community together um, in an open source um, uh, community or uh, um, or um, running an organization that that builds technology I think so so I, I think I probably sometimes get pulled towards the the bigger picture ideas um, but it doesn't mean it's it's any less fun to, to write code yeah. Well, and, and, you know, it, it sounds like some, a lot of these roles too, you have this kind of uh, enlarged amount of social engagement that you have to do. Maybe that's not the right way of mm-hmm. saying that, but I mean, mm-hmm. were you, were you always kind of naturally somebody who liked to engage with and work with others? You know, there's often a, you know, and I think it's often a, a, a bit misguided but there's often this perception that engineers developers just kind of like to you know leave us alone and and we'll do great things and and Mm -hmm. yet you know a lot of your roles here are naturally very uh uh extroverted if you will right and that you have to go engage with a lot of others is that is that something you had to learn or is that something that just has always naturally come to you um i think you know as as you describe it i hadn't really thought about it this way before but i think what uh, what I have done a few times in in my career careers is um, ended up being the person in the middle between two different groups, and so I think going from coding and then getting into doing standards work or as you know as a uh, program manager doing that kind of work, I was I had to know enough about coding to be able to make sense to the engineers, um, and then I also had to know enough about the business case 
uh, to talk to them. And then, as you know, when I was uh, uh, later at the Apache Software Foundation, I ended up um, as the vice president of legal affairs. And I didn't, I didn't have a law degree, but I was just so interested, as many of us uh, were, and, and many developers out there still are today, especially in open source, in you know intellectual property law and the you know licenses because it's kind of like code a little bit yeah. and um and so what i ended up doing there was i think that was again a place where i was wasn't a lawyer um and yet i um i think what i enjoyed about that role was knowing enough to be able to have a good intelligent conversation with a lawyer um and you know still uh um uh be dependent on that lawyer's advice for for the important things um, and yet also be able to have a conversation with the business people or a conversation with um, with uh, just um, committers at a, a community. And um, I think I think that's just been something I've enjoyed doing is knowing enough about a few things that you can be a useful person in the middle. Yeah, so you kind of had the, you had the specialization in programming that then allowed you to generalize to a number of different areas. Um, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, this is something I, I resonate with a lot in my own career of just, you know, I, I like programming, but I don't necessarily have to or want to do it all the time. But yet, if I don't get to do it enough, I feel like it, there's something missing. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I think as you grow in your career, that's that's often a, a really interesting pattern that I've seen emerge with others. Well, so let's, let's talk then a, a bit more about Amblio Network and, and maybe just the best way is like, tell us the story, tell us the inspiration and, and how you arrived as, uh, you know, founding this, this nonprofit, which is doing some amazing work. And, and then, you know, what's in, what's it, what's involved with it? What do you, you know, what kind of is the day to day like? Okay. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> well, uh, it was while I was still uh, doing work in open source and specifically around uh, copyright licensing, that kind of thing. I was, um, uh, was giving a talk one day in Atlanta, and the day before I was supposed to give this talk, I decided to just uh, be a, um, a tourist and wandered around the city, and um, I uh, accidentally uh, came upon the grave of Martin Luther King Jr., and uh, really, without planning to at all, I just was kind of taking a random walk at some point through the neighborhoods. And um, and you know, before I came to the grave, I came to the whole memorial park where there's a statue of Gandhi, and there's lots of quotes from uh, Dr. King and Gandhi about uh, service to humanity and you know, sort of um, what it means to live a, a meaningful life. Um, and so I thought a lot about that, and uh, you know, thought about. Um, what's been important to me in my life. And, uh, and then by the time I got up to his grave, uh, it was uh, really almost like being struck by lightning. Um, I felt immediately like um, I felt like I felt very small. This is probably my ego, I guess. I felt very small compared to him. You know, I thought uh, I thought I'd done some pretty impressive, interesting things in my life. Uh, But standing, you know, face to face, so to speak with him, I felt like, whoa, I'm, I haven't really done quite as much as I would like maybe. And then I also felt like he wouldn't be proud of me that um, for what, what I had chosen to do with my life is nothing to be ashamed of, but, but that I wasn't applying myself in a way that um, was, uh, you know, making the most out of, out of hmm. not just my talents and experience, but my passion and interest and that sort of thing. So, um, 
so I walked away from there and I, I knew without a doubt that I was going to dedicate the rest of my life to service to humanity in some form. I didn't know what, um, I hoped it would be something around, uh, something I would enjoy like technology. <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of felt like I just wanted to sort of be guided or guide myself in some ways to, to do the thing that would, uh, be most helpful to the world. And, um, and, uh, and then I, you know, came across this idea of, um, of uh, what we do now with Amplio. Yeah. So, so tell us a, a little bit more about Amplio and, and kind of, you know, especially the tech part of it. Cause I, I think you've got a really interesting mix of leveraging technology, simplifying it in many ways to a product that is then usable by pretty much anybody. So, you know, fill some in a little bit on, you know, the talking book and, and, and the broader view of what you're doing there. Yeah. Okay, sure. So the, the broader view is, is that um, uh, today we all take for granted many things that we inherit in, in our, you know, in, in where we're born and in what resources are available to us. Um, but one of the things is um, access to knowledge and especially for, for, you know, anyone interested in technology, um, you know, the typical profile of someone interested in technology is someone who likes to learn, likes to learn new things. And, um, and we take for granted that we have so much available to us um, uh, to, to learn things because there's content, um, you know, at our fingertips, because we have electricity and we have broadband internet, because it's in a language that we can understand, um, uh, you know, most of the world's content being in English. Um, and, uh, um, because we're literate to be able to read it. Um, and, and, you know, we have access to it pretty much whenever we want. Um, so if it's not a good time to read it now, we can read it later. Well, um, that, that's not how it is, of course, for, for many people in the world. And the, the real problem to me is that the people who need knowledge the most um, are the ones that, that have the least access to it. So when I say need it the most, I'm talking about people who are dealing with extreme poverty who live on a dollar a day who's you know they have five children and one of those five is likely going to die by their fifth birthday and that's because of the the amount of uh, infectious diseases and um, and things that we just can't even really imagine unless you know any any of your listeners have uh, lived in a situation where yeah. um, you know malaria was prevalent and um, uh, and so uh, or any of these other issues um, and so when you're facing those kinds of challenges, the ones that we just don't even think about, um, and you wish you could learn, um, you know, why, uh, how can you prevent the spread of disease and understand that washing your hands with soap, even when your hands don't have dirt on them, is one way to, to reduce the spread of disease, um, or sleeping under a bed net um, so you don't get bitten by a mosquito, which will uh, cause you to get malaria, but not just sleep under the bed net, but more detailed than that, um, tuck it in under your mattress. Don't let it lean on your skin. Make sure it's treated with insecticide. Inspect it for holes. You know, these kinds of things. And then, and then the, uh, hearing someone who, um, who understands your situation tell you, look, I know it's not comfortable to sleep under a bed net because the airflow isn't as nice. Um, and on a hot, you know, sticky day, it's our night. It's, it's, uh, it's not what you want to do, but just believe me, you, you've got to do this, especially if you're a pregnant woman or a child under five, because you're the ones that are most vulnerable to dying from malaria. Hmm. And so that's what people didn't have. And, um, and so what I 
was looking for a solution to was how technology, very low cost, simple technology could provide that access to knowledge and ideas to people in the hardest to reach communities and, and people who have had the, the greatest challenges, you know, again, ones we can't even imagine, um, uh, make it work for them so that they have something spoken in their own local language. So it doesn't require literacy skills and, um, and addressing their actual needs. Yeah, that's brilliant. And so talk a little bit about the device, because I mean, you, you, you kind of called on a lot of your different experiences in your career to, to come up with this device that I think, you know, addresses uh, what you're after here, right? So fill us a little bit on yeah. the tech side of it, if you will. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Um, it's, uh, it's just a little audio computer. Um, so uh, um, my, it all it does is it, it speaks to you. Um, in your local language and it says uh um you know welcome to the talking book and to learn something new press the the right hand and so there's icons on the device and uh you know a lot i could tell you about the different testing we did to find out what icons were were best for for people but it basically it says you know press the right hand or press the tree or press the the table um or the pot and and people hear that in their language and they they look at these pictures and they say oh obviously that means this one we don't do uh numbers press one for this or two for this because a lot of people who are illiterate don't have numeracy skills either um and it also just makes it more fun to have these pictures so they push this and then we just have um uh you know basically a little declarative uh programming language that i came up with that says um if you're playing a certain uh um audio file, um, like an MP3, um, or a segment of that audio file, and an event happens, uh, like this button was pushed, or the file ends, or something like that, um, then jump to this other place, which has its own set of uh, events it's looking for, whether another button was pushed, or something like that. And so that allowed um, me to you know, create a language that uh, other people could program pretty easily. And at one point, I thought it would just be programmed by lots of people and who knows what they would come up with. Um, in the end, that became a useful little, um, you know, nice, simple declarative language for us to iterate on, to not kind of go into embedded C code every time we wanted to try something new, but it allowed us to, um, uh, to try a lot of new things um, to see what worked. And then once we found what was working well, um, there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, let's reprogram this or, or let's... Um, it is open sourced, but there's not like a community of people who want to, you know, change right. it a lot of different ways. Um, it's mainly focused on how do we solve the problem of getting the right knowledge to the right people um, with our, with the partners that we have. Yeah. So then it's more about sourcing and, and getting the, the, the data on the devices and distributing the devices, I would imagine. Well, so mm -hmm. let's like, let's perhaps shift gears a little bit. So that, that's a great background and, and an incredible mission. Um, you know, it's something I, I personally felt strongly about and, and have been, been a long uh, time fan of what you're doing there. Um, you know, talk a little bit then about, you know, for our listeners from a career perspective, like what goes into being an executive director of a nonprofit foundation like this, especially, you know, like one where you, you've got this manufacturing part to what you're doing. And then of course you've got fundraising you've got, you know, getting the devices out, you've got field testing, all, all these kinds of things. Like what does your day look like and, and or week and or month? <laughs> Yeah, um, 
Yeah, it's it's been interesting. Uh, it's not something I'd ever done before. Um, I I didn't, and I wasn't looking to be an executive director or a CEO. It, it wasn't something I was trying to get away from, or that I really wanted to do. It was more that I I wanted this this yeah. this device to get out there and to work well, and um, and so yeah, as as the organization has grown, um, so and we're not huge in Seattle. We're only seven people, and in um, Ghana, we're about uh, fifteen or so. Um, so yeah, 22 people altogether. Um, and, uh, but we do reach about, um, nearly 700,000 people with, with these talking books. Um, but that's also been over, um, you know, we, it, it took us almost 11 years to get to that stage. So it's, it's, uh, it's been a while, but anyway, to answer your question, um, yeah, it is, uh, uh, we do have, um, in, you know, in our seven people person team in, in Seattle, we have uh, a, uh, a software engineer um, who also worked at Microsoft many, many years ago before I did, and then worked at Amazon for a long time. And then he was kind of ready to retire, but uh, but saw that we were looking to hire someone and uh, and felt like he wanted to do um, you know apply his his uh, engineering talents to something that would. Um, not help a company and their shareholders get rich, but also, but instead, um, you know, help help the world be a better place somehow. So, uh, so uh, we have him. So he, so we, and he and I uh, have some fun conversations. You know, some tech collaborations, I guess. <laughs> um, but I don't write any code. Um, and then uh, we have a communications person, and so you know, that's all. Uh, you know, how do you make this message simple? what we do is not as simple as we build schools. So, um, so I, uh, uh, collaborate a little bit with communications, although I guess it's probably an area where I feel like I, I have the least experience in. And so, um, so I'm, I'm not as deeply involved there. Um, and then of course we have the, the program side. So you've got this technology, but how is it going to be applied and how will it make a difference and how do you measure that? And what are the standards in the global development world? Um, for you know measuring things like the knowledge attitudes and practices of of people listening to messages uh you know in the field of uh social and behavior change communication so these are all just things that you know at first i thought well we just build a piece of technology and you know we do a lot of iterative testing and uh you know user centered design ideas but um but in the end you know we just put on some audio and people hear it and they learn stuff um, but you realize that you you know there's decades of work being done in this, uh, whether it's radio or you know uh, Mexican telenovelas that were that were uh, had a lot you know basically soap operas, but had a little bit of content that convinced people um, uh, to consider family planning type approaches. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, there's there's a lot out there, so you just kind of realize uh, you don't need to invent everything. You know, you you invented a device, but Everywhere else around it, uh, there are a lot of experts doing a lot of things for for a lot of years, and so you just try to, you know, hire the people that have had experience in that, and 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 yeah. you know, be that person in the middle to be able to understand and talk with everyone. Yeah. So we've, in many ways, your your role has come full circle, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. you know, you're 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 the person connecting at the yeah. end of the day and, and you, because of this background that that has allowed you to be technical you, you can work in with the technical side it sounds like you even did some of the early technical work but then <laughs> yes. you 
so can deal with the the legal and the social and the you know and and you know let's face it too like you have a sales hat on here too right mm, definitely in the sense that you're competing for dollars you know that you then want to apply and so you've got to go sell you know donors on on your vision uh as well right that's so. true and not just donors um we're a, a social enterprise and um that can mean different things to different people although we are a nonprofit. Um, we're a nonprofit social enterprise in that we we have a, a service and a product that we sell, um, and so um, part of our revenue comes from uh, what's considered earned revenue, a service we provide, and and customers if they think it's valuable enough pay us for that service, and so that's what we provide to um, to UNICEF. They're one of our big customers, oh, and um, uh, Care. Um, one of the uh, world's largest international nonprofits, and so a lot of these organizations. So, so yeah, we we really are selling a, a product and a service that um, that has to be valuable to them, or they won't buy it. And then, in addition to that, we have to raise funds because we, uh, in the same way that a you know a, a for-profit startup uh, needs to get uh, capital from angel investors or or VCs, um, we need to get capital from donors because we don't have the the global volume yet to also cover the costs of R and D and that sort of thing. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, you know, so, so kind of one last question on kind of the, the, uh, day to day and that, like, so what's, what's ahead for Amplio? Like, what do you see as the big, you know, challenges facing, you know, you and the team in terms of, of broadening the scope of this or, you know, continuing to execute on your vision here? Yeah, um, well, we're looking to reach 10 million people. So I told you, you know, we're not even at a million yet, but um, just kind of thinking about um, uh, where the kind of the next big milestone is for us. And to, one of the reasons we have that in mind is because at that volume, we could uh, wean ourselves off, off of the dependency on donations um, because we would have enough, just enough projects going and the, the marginal profit from each one should be able to cover the, the investments that we want to make to, to um, keep things advancing and to keep people learning from each other in uh, when they do this work. So, um, so yeah, so re- to reach 10 million people, that means that we have to shift to what we call a, a self-service offering. So you have this device, but to get the right content and to, have people understand how to create really interesting songs or dramas or, um, or interviews, you know, this is the type of content that's loaded on these devices. Um, and then how to use the software to make sure the right language is on the right device, you know, goes to the right village. Um, and then how to make sense of all the usage statistics that we get where we can see what people are listening to and listen to the user feedback where you can hear people say, what their needs are and what their real challenges are and what the root causes are and how to take that qualitative user feedback and, um, and code it in a way that you can get some quantitative results to make decisions on. Um, so all of that stuff, it's, I'm just trying to give you a sense of, mm-hmm. it's not as simple as uh, here's a device, you know, uh, load some content on it and throw it out there in a village and good things will happen. And so our challenge is to, build a self-service platform where the software is all intuitive and easy for an, any organization to use and where the training to complement that, to make that possible is available online uh, so people can learn all these things. And so that's, that's uh, so we're doing a lot more work in, in software to make things easier to use. And then we're also doing a lot on around uh, online self-service training. Yeah. 
Wow, very cool. I mean, it's just it's so many interesting ways. Like all of your your career parts uh, have have melded in here, and of course, the the tech factor. I think you know for our listeners who you know they like tech and and love to be involved in that, but perhaps you know like you want to uh, take on a different mission in life. It it, it seems like you found a, a pretty nice a sweet spot that combines those. So, so let me then finish up then with the, the same question I asked pretty much all my guests, you know, Cliff, which is, you know, now that you kind of reflect back on all these different roles, and I think, you know, you've even hinted at how they've kind of all come together, you know, what's your advice for, for somebody who perhaps wants to work in tech on, in a nonprofit or, or wants to follow a similar path to you? Okay, great. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, you know, really um, every nonprofit can use uh, uh, some uh, tech folks, um, you know, whether it's for internal processes getting better um, or whether it's, uh, it's integral to their, their core program offering like ours is. Um, so I think if you're someone in tech and you want to work in a nonprofit, you're going to have lots of organizations that are going to be happy to, to have your help. Um, and then, uh, you know, the only issue is that you might not have the budget that you would get in the for-profit side. So, you know, we here in Seattle, we have to compete against Amazon and we, we, uh, we really can't pay the same kind of salary. So I think that's uh, an Im- important thing. Um, there are nonprofits out there that say, you know, we should compete. We should pay the same amount as for-profits because we, we want the best people. Um, it's just, it's tough because you always want to do as much as you can. And then the other thing is that w- when you're looking at working at a, at a nonprofit, um, you should think about it as what are you getting out of it and what you get out of it will involve salary, but it will involve other things as well. Um, you know, what you're learning about the world or what you feel that you're contributing to or, um, you know, many other different things. And so we're able to still find, uh, you know, the most talented engineers, um, because, um, because we do offer something that's uh, refreshingly different and changes the world in, in ways that I think is, is greater impact than, than uh, you know, what some of the larger tech companies are doing. Um, and yet, uh, um, it's, uh, you know, the, the technical challenges are just as interesting. You know, yeah. Dealing with an offline environment where people don't have electricity is a, is a new set of technical challenges that, that you don't get in, uh, in other places. In many ways, it's often even harder, right? Because you know, there's you're you're dealing with much more extreme conditions. Like you said, no, there's no internet handy. There's no you know not necessarily easy access to to you know things like Wi-Fi and and power and all of that kind of stuff. And then this thing's got to be durable too, right? You know, it's yeah. things like just get dropped and and kicked around. Yeah. And, and people sometimes take the batteries out of it while it's playing. And there's not that many digital devices that run off, uh, you know, batteries that you can just pop out. Um, ours needed to do that because that was the only source of power that people had. And so we ended up having to put a super capacitor in there. So it, it you know, stored a couple seconds of power and then write the software to say, hey, the, the, vol- the voltage is dropping and it's dropping really fast. So I think we should shut down safely and, uh, and, uh, and do that. And if you didn't do that, you're going to end up with a corrupted memory card. And so, yeah, those are the kind of things that you don't, you don't run into in your, your regular tech job. Wow. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, hey, Cliff, you know, this has been great. I, re- I really enjoyed getting, getting a taste of your, your background. And of course, uh, like I said, I'm a, I'm a big fan of what the Amplio Network is, 
is up to these days. So I just want to take the time to thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I know you've got a very busy schedule with lots of travel. So I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thank you, Grant. Uh, it's a, a pleasure talking with you. And thank you so much for, uh, for telling more of the world about the work we're doing. There you have it. Cliff Schmidt, the executive director of the Amplio Network, will be sure to link up uh, in the show notes uh, Amplio's website. And of course, I'm sure he would very much appreciate any donations or help. Uh, so thanks again, Cliff. Thank you, Grant.